Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys, welcome back to the Equip You and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and today I have my new friend, Eric Ortland on the on the show. Eric, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, that's great. Great. Looking forward to it. Well, can you tell us about your life, marriage, ministry, and what are you up to ministry project-wise these days? Oh, uh, well, let's see. I just turned uh, 46 years old. I know I look much older, but that's how old I am. I've uh, been living in London for about five and a half years. Before that, we were in Saskatchewan, Canada, which I, uh, I'm i not still not sure I can quite spell that. Um, but I'm married with two children, 17-year-old and almost 15-year-old. Uh, I teach Hebrew and Old Testament, and I really love Job and Ecclesiastes and the Psalms and Isaiah. Those are, I should probably just pick one and stick with it, but I can't. So those are the four places I tend to go. Nobody can spell Saskatchewan. And I think, <laughs> I think, I think most people have a hard time saying it. So sure. <laughs> yeah. And and why pick one when you can have all of them at the, and have all the fun, right? Yeah. Well, when I move from one to the other, then I'm trying to catch up on stuff. It's like, wow, there's a lot to learn about this book. So part of me wishes I would just specialize, but yeah. That's great, though. Well, you, you you have this new book forthcoming. It'll come out around the time that this show comes out. Uh, can you tell us about Suffering Wisely and Well, The Grief of Job and the Grace of God, why you wrote it, and how do you hope it'll be received, please? Um, yeah. Uh, when I first started teaching in Canada, I had to teach wisdom literature at least once a year. And I managed to do absolutely nothing with it. And I had to teach it, which was a scary experience. This is going to sound terrible. It, I, it wasn't that I I was surprised that Job was pastorally relevant. I was surprised at how relevant it was. Um, I expected to be helpful in some ways, but every single time I would teach, people would say, oh, this is resonating with my story and my life. And I did not know that the book of Job could do that. I remember I was teaching um, in a church, a church in Canada once about Psalms of Lament. And someone raised their hand and said, I've been through a time of lament and I didn't know what it was or why it was happening. And now that I've been introduced to Psalms of Lament, I have a category for this. So my sense is, my own experience has been God leads people into a time of Job-like suffering, whether they know the book of Job really well or not. Just so frequently have people come up after class or in church and just, and, and you know, they have that sort of shocked look in a kind of a quiet voice and they'd be reflecting out loud with me. So I, I wrote Suffering Wisely and Well to, to, to tell people everything I think is pastorally helpful about Job in as brief and simple and clear and direct a way as possible. Mm. And I hope it will be, I hope it'll be received that way. Yeah. And I think those are the best kind of books. Like you're just writing out of, you know, your material has been helpful to other people and then you want to help other people you know, discover those truths. And I think that's great. And, and Job is just, I mean, it's chock full of people think, oh, you know, Job's friends and we're going to talk about that. But I yeah. mean, there's way more to Job than, 
than that. So that's really great. Yeah. Yeah. You know, many people wonder why God allows suffering and trials in the lives of his children. In what ways does the book of Job give us insight into the, you know, human suffering? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to hedge. I'm going to be annoying and and hedge and fudge on this a little bit. I don't think the book of Job is universally relevant. I think it describes a particular kind of ordeal in which the, the pain we're going through does not make any sense according to any sort of category or framework or biblical framework that we have. And I'm happy to talk about that more if you want to. Um, so I don't think it's you. It's not a universal explanation. And I think there is an important sense in which the book of Job is not a theodicy in the sense of a full justification. It's not as if God opens up the, the books of heaven in such a way that Job can act as an independent auditor and independently agree with God that he's doing the right thing as he runs the world. And he allows at times terrible suffering. I don't think God justifies himself to Job. So in that sense, it's not an explanation. However, uh, in chapters one and two, the reader is granted a heavenly perspective into Job's ordeal that Job doesn't get and never gets. He dies ignorant um, of, of, of what we know. And we see that larger purpose in why God lets Job go through this. And it's found in that terrible question that the accuser asks, does Job fear God for no reason? And the implication is Job, Job is a gold digger. He's treating you like a Santa Claus. He just wants the picture perfect life you've given him. And Job secretly hates you. And as soon as you take that away, you'll see how you really feel about him. Hmm. And that's a really profound issue for Christians. Because if we can't pass that test, if there isn't at some level, if there isn't some sort of sincere love of God for his own sake, regardless of what it gains, regardless of what we gain from a relationship with God, or regardless of what a relationship with God costs us, then I'm going to be, if that's not true of me in some sense, I'm going to be bored in heaven. Because all of the secondary blessings I, that I enjoy in this life, I will lose in the eschaton when God is going to be all in all. Mm. So the test, Job doesn't know it's a test, and he can't. Because if he, if he knew, it would be too easy for the accuser to say, well, Job is just saying the right thing because he knows if he does, then you'll reward him. But, but the test gets at something very deep and very necessary about being a Christian, where, where you love God for who he is in himself. And you stick with him even when he gives you good reason to give up on him, even if even if he allows something really terrible to happen to you. And every Christian has to be able to answer that imperfectly but sincerely, hmm. or there's no point to us going to heaven at all. So that that's that's the explanation that we get. Job never gets that explanation. <laughs> and I think the text is hinting to us when we go through a Job-like ordeal, it's not going to be explained to us. There will be a permanent lack of resolution, which I think is frustrating to us. Hmm. But the book of Job is maybe the one place in scripture that does reveal what is God, what God is up to in this particular kind of suffering. I think that's really, I think that's really helpful because we do tend to read it as an answer to, you know, the problem of evil. But like you're saying there, and you're right, there is no real answer. I mean, you look at the end of Job, uh, I think it's 42 through, four, no, excuse me, 40 through 42. And, you know, basically, who are you? You're dust. I mean, you're, you're you know, made in the image of God, but, um, and, 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 you know, have dignity and value and worth before God, but, you know, we're dust. And, you know, Job, Job is leveled by God, you know, and I think I, I, I think that there is an answer that Job gets. It's just not a justification. 
Right. If, if, if I tell my kid to do something and they're not happy about it, I might explain to them why I want them to do it and justify my decision to them. But I might also say, I'm not going to explain this to you. Just go do it. I'm your dad. I don't think God justifies his decision to allow evil to Job, but he does give an answer um, that satisfies Job. He, he does say, I'm fully aware of the problem and I will not tolerate it forever. So that may seem like a, like, like a very fine distinction. But the whole question of the problem of evil and the word theodicy means a justification of God. I don't think we get that in Job. And I, I think that's actually important. But Yeah, I think so. Do you want to say some more about that? Or maybe maybe people are thinking that, that it does. Sure, sure. Well, so so the Bible contains different theodicies in the sense of they are a justification. They're they are a compelling explanation for why God will would allow suffering. Um, suffering for sin is a good example. If God never let pain enter our lives when we rebel against him, that would be bad. It's justified for God to do that. Suffering for spiritual growth is a good example of that. When spiritual, when, when God allows pain that produces a good that can't be produced any other way and that is greater than the evil, then it's justifiable for God to allow evil to exist. If you look at God's speech to Job, though, none of what he says, he, he doesn't say, like, our light momentary sufferings are working out for us an eternal weight of glory. Beautiful and true as that is, nothing that God says to Job has, is anything like that at all. I, I can tell you what I think God is saying to Job at the end there, but, but there, isn't, there isn't a sort of, Job, let me explain why I made this policy decision as king of the universe. I, I understand God more to be saying, Job, I am more aware of the problem than you are. I tolerate, I keep it within strict limits for now. I tolerate it for now. I won't forever. There's coming a day I'm going to unsheath my sword and kill Leviathan and scour every last ounce of evil for my creation. I haven't done that yet, but I will. And I'm well aware of the problem. Will you trust me in the meantime? That's not a justification of why God tolerates evil for now. Um, but it is an answer. And I think Job is satisfied. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. So how much do we know about God's uh, purpose in our suffering? Is that, is, and you kind of talked about this next question a little bit too. Is there anything sure. that we will never know about our suffering? Sure, sure. Well, yeah, I think that there is lots that we will never know. I, I, I don't know this for certain, Dave, but my guess is the fact that we're given an insight into Job's ordeal that he never gets mm -hmm. I think the narrator is implying to us, when you go through a Job-like ordeal, there is a greater reason in what's going on, but God won't tell you what it is, or the ordeal would backfire. Um, we are told that God has to put us in a position where the only motive we have left for staying a Christian is God and God himself. And as I say in the book, almost the last thing Job says is, now my eye sees you. He's just taken up in God. Yep. And, and and just like having more kids or anything like that just has it just it's not a part of the equation at all in the slightest. Um, so I think in the book of Job, God is going to draw near to us. He is able to comfort us and satisfy us that he's not a bad person for letting these things happen. But an exact explanation, we're, I, th I think the very nature of a Job-like ordeal, we're going to have that niggling, nagging sense of there was way more going on there than I knew. I don't have all the pieces to the puzzle. There's more going on there. I know that I don't know something, and I just can't figure it out. And I, I think in Job, when we see what God's larger strategy is, he's fitting us for eternity. But I don't know that God is ever going to explain that to us directly. Yeah. Well, maybe in heaven we'll get a, we'll, we'll get a full answer. <laughs> presumably, presumably. Presumably. 
yeah, when we but, see face to face. Yeah. I mean, I think that's good though, because, you know, we do have to have a better understanding of God, but we also need to understand there's limitations to our yeah. ability to understand Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us the secret things belong yeah. to the Lord, but the Lord has revealed his enough of himself to be, to be known. And so we should, as you're saying, take him at that, at his specific revelation of, of himself in the word. And that's, that's enough for us. And we, we should, you know, take that to heart um, and, and trust him in the midst of suffering. In fact, James one tells us to brothers to consider it pure joy when you face tri trials of various kinds and uh, Romans five comes to mind, uh, you know, being steadfast and those kind of things. And I mean, there's, there's tons of first Peter Hebrews. I mean, the Bible is rich with this kind of suffering and, the reason is uh, Hebrews 12, 1 tells us that you know, we have an author and finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus. And he's a, Hebrews tells us he's an anchor to the soul and, you know, on and on and on and on. So, yeah. Well, in chapter. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. I'm just agreeing with you. Amen. <laughs> OK. <laughs> in chapter one, you specify various types of suffering that Christians may experience. What are what are the kinds of suffering may, we may experience in our lifetimes? Sure, sure. So I, I I see in the Bible that, you know, and I try to say in, in the book that we just, you know, life is messy. We may not be always be able to tell, but I see in the Bible, I think suffering for sin is a clear category that happens repeatedly and shows up in the Bible. You see it in the Psalms, you see it in David's life. I think suffering for spiritual growth is a very clear category. You see it clearly in Joseph's life. You see it clearly in the passages from James and Romans 5, which you just quoted. There's an unambiguous connection between pain and just growing up as a Christian. You see getting persecuted for the faith. You know, that, that's a clear category in the book of Acts. That might grow you as a Christian, but it's not often stated that way in the book of Acts. It, it, that might happen. It's just, but it's a, it's a separate category, you know. Um, I do talk about times of lament, which I think are their own unique thing. Uh, but I see the book of Job as being unique and distinct from all those. Job, it, the text bends over backwards to say Job has done nothing that could possibly explain what he goes through as punishment from God. And I, th I think the text is saying Job, none of his sufferings meant to grow him spiritually because Job does not need to grow spiritually. He's already in chapter one described as a mature saint. And if Job benefits in any other way than a deeper vision of God, then the ordeal misfires and the accuser can always say, well, of course, Job says he loves you. So, so the, the Christian virtues of endurance and hope and perseverance cannot be Job's more by the end of his ordeal because we are happier when we have those, right? Yep. Job can't be happy for any other reason than God and God alone or the whole ordeal misfires. And I think, I think that's a distinct kind of ordeal. And the book of Job is the one place in the canon that, that talks about it. And unfortunately, not many people seem to know about it. Hence this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. That's really good. You, you've mentioned lament a few times now. Um, maybe you want to just talk with us about that and how that helps us. Yeah, um, I, I, I would see that as a slight, slightly separate category from the book of Job. Uh, surprisingly, in the Psalms, you get to say stuff to God that I would not let my kids say to me. Sometimes they can be quite, I mean, to our ears, they sound quite rude. You know, um, but it looks from the Psalms of Lament, it looks like a normal chapter in a Christian's life is one in which God 
does not absolutely forsake the person who trusts him, but removes his presence from some degree and does not act on behalf of the one who trusts him in some way. Did you, did, did you go to Christian camp growing up at all? Did you do the yeah. trust fall? You know, for uh, no, somebody no, standing. No, I didn't. Oh, okay. Oh. I had to do those in camp. Somebody stands behind you, you cross your arms and you fall backwards and you suppress your instinct to catch yourself. And you, you, you trust the other people to catch you, not let you hit the ground. It's really hard to do. And Psalms of Lament are essentially, I'm doing a trust fall and you're not catching me. Hmm. They're, they're, they are about uh, times of God's absence and inactivity that doesn't make sense. And you are allowed to ask why. You are allowed to say, Lord, this hurts your reputation. If you had been active in my life, other people would have converted. They would have seen what you had done. They would have converted. They'd be in church worshiping along with me as well. Why am I in so much pain over this? And and, and frequently in, yeah, I think I'll say frequently in, in Psalms of Lament, it, it, it makes clear those times of lament don't last forever. God allows them temporarily. That's true in the book of Job as well. And that God wins great gains for his kingdom through times of lament. That's clearest probably in Psalm 22, when God reignites fellowship with David and reactivates his own saving power on David's behalf. All other kinds of people inside and outside Israel start taking Yahweh really seriously in a way they never had before because they can see what God has done. That's how I understand lament in the Psalms of lament. Job is slightly different because... Well, I go into it, 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 it's it's slightly its own category. Uh, for some reasons, I go into the book, but it's still a valid biblical category that I, I wish was a little more current for us as Western Christians. Yeah, I think when I think of lament, I think of that, what you said, and also just that it helps us to, you know, we see in the Psalms, it helps us to express our, you know, our questions, our fears, our doubts to God and and to take them and and then to, you know, trust the Lord. In, in yeah. with with those things and you know that and my parent especially this has been a particularly helpful with my parents who have my my dad has dementia and my oh. mom has alzheimer's and i'm so, so this, sorry thank you it's it's been a helpful category to you know just take that and then hey the you know the lord knows and he knows what he's doing and um so it's it's been a good thing I'm sorry. Yeah, that that is not easy. Yeah, Psalms lament are appropriate in those situations. Yeah, yeah. Well, brother, how can we be good Christian friends and not exhibit the characteristics of Job's friends during uh, Job's suffering? Yes, thank thank you for asking me that, Dave. Now, this answer, the answer to this important question is incredibly complicated. It's going to take me several hours to explain this. It is really subtle. So everyone needs to really listen really closely. Ready? Don't blame people. That's it. <laughs> That's all you have to do. No, I, I, that doesn't completely answer the question because you still need to ask when you're talking to a modern day Job, what do you say? But the major, you get chapter after chapter after chapter of bombastic, moralistic, legalistic, self-righteous condemnation. And just you deserved everything you got. And in fact, the friends will even say, God is treating you nice. He let you off easy job and he should have killed you. He's given you one last chance to repent. Why are you making this so difficult? Because God is always fair and just. So if he's punishing you as a sinner, then you must be a sinner, you know? And I think, I, I think at least in part, the author does that to really deeply frustrate us and irritate us with the friends and make sure that we, it, it's to inoculate us so that we decide by the end of the book of Job, 
I am never going to presume that I know what is going on in someone's life and blame them for what they're going through and say, oh, well, you know, if you had done X and Y differently, maybe you wouldn't, maybe this wouldn't be happening to you right now. The, 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 the friends presume that they know, um, what's the best way to say this? It is always true, biblically, that sin leads to suffering. It's not always true that if there's suffering, there must have been sin. Other causes are there, but the friends will not allow that. Innocent suffering is a contradiction in terms for them. If someone is having a hard time, these, it, that is reducible to some mistake they made. And Christians think this way sometimes because it's deeply comforting. If everyone gets exactly what they deserve in quick, easy, immediate ways, and the world is a fair, comprehensible place. But if people can suffer and they never know why, the world's a lot scarier, you know. And, and if effect and cause don't always line up, and if being a really good Christian doesn't, all, doesn't always mean your life will be great, and I want to interrupt myself here and say the book of Job does clearly say that serving God is so, so worth it, both in this life and the next, and Job is deeply blessed in this life for serving God. It really is worth it. But the book of Job also wants to say God reserves the right to interrupt those secondary blessings for his own reason, to prove the reality of the relationship, and the friends just won't allow that. Um, I found in the past when I've been talking with suffering Christians, the temptation to blame is so profound. It's so sneaky. It's so tempting to say, well, maybe if you had done, because watching another Christian suffer is really hard. It's painful. And blaming them is a way of isolating myself. It's a way of subconsciously saying it'll never happen to me because I didn't make that mistake. And it's a way of saying I'm better than you because I didn't make that mistake. And that's a very, um, heady, addictive feeling. Whenever I get to find a biblical, pious way to put another Christian down and elevate myself, that can feel pretty good. Um, it's a very sneaky temptation, and it's one we should never give into, ever. We should just never, I mean, and it's tough because when someone, if there's someone in your church who has an affair and it comes out and they're broken and weeping, well, it is their own fault that they're in pain. But we need to have this category of Job-like suffering, and we need to resist the temptation uh, to presume that we can understand someone's position before God and fix them, because sometimes we just can't, and we'll just torture them in the meantime, and we'll incur the wrath of God against us, because God is really angry with the friends by the end. Yeah, yeah. I think there's, um, you know, when we talk about, you know, friends and Job and stuff like that, and the uh, we we tend to be kind of cautious, I think justly, you know, about, you know, the grieving person and what we say, but I also think that um, the, the, there's this kind of teaching out there that says you, you might not say, almost. it's almost like, it's not so explicit as this, but it's almost like you shouldn't say anything really much at all to them. And I don't think that's mm -hmm. as helpful um, as, as just saying, Hey, I'm here for you. And, you know, maybe following up a little bit later and I'm praying for you or something like that. Um, I think that's, I think that's, uh, as, as, as far as I would go, you know, with, with that. And I have done that and people just appreciate the follow-up, you know, like you're saying, you know, don't blame, don't, but don't, don't also like surround them and coddle them. And, you know, you know, those kind of things show real empathy and care and, um, some social skills um, yeah. is yeah. is uh, some, some yeah. basic relational competence, right? Yeah, yeah, 
You know what's difficult about, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. Part of what's difficult about this is that when there's a joke like Gil, after a while, you kind of have to say something, especially when they're asking why. It is really good just to take time and not try to theologize with people. But when you're dealing with a modern day joke, after a while, they'll probably start saying like, like, I treat my own kids better than God treated me. Is God just incompetent? Or is it something even worse? And then you you kind of can't avoid it. And, and, you know, people in pain say crazy things. And when you have a dear Christian brother or sister who's saying some crazy things about God, it can be really tempting to lecture them or argue with them or, or like try to defeat them in an argument. And it just does no good. It just hurts them further. Um, I don't know that that really answers what you do say to a joke, but at the very least, I mean, I think it can be really helpful to say, listen, I want you, like, if you think the book of Job is relevant, say, say, God is not angry with you and he's not clobbering you to try to get you to learn a lesson. He just wants you to hold on and it will not always be like this. Um, I'd want to go something in that direction. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really good. You know, they are going to ask questions. I can't I can't help it. Luke 645 tells us how the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, you know, we can't yeah. we can't help. But when we're dealing with intense periods of suffering to ask why and you know we yeah. might say and be patient you know there's that's why second timothy 2 20 through 24 talks about how we're supposed to be patient and and uh you know correct people gently not like you said with a club you know but yeah. with love so yeah well what what does god communicate to job at the end of the book that profoundly comforts him yeah yeah uh i find god's speech well, there are two speeches to Job. I find them fascinating because in, they're different, but both in both of them, God manages to be utterly realistic, utterly realistic about the state of the world as it is, the real world we actually live in, of cancer and human trafficking and divorce and child abuse, and utterly joyful about the world. That line early on about the sons of God singing for joy when God created the world. Beings higher than you and me that would scare us if we could see them. They were singing the Hallelujah Chorus when Genesis 1 happened. Job has made specific claims about God and God's world and the way God runs the world. And he, we tend to do this when we're in pain. His vision contracts so that he sees everything through the prism of his trauma. And he starts making these sweeping generalizations about how God treats everyone. You can read chapter 12 for that. And God... He in, in the poetry itself, he picks up claims that Job makes and re-describes the world in a much happier way, but in a way that never implies he's viewing the world through rose-colored glasses. So, Dave, anytime you would, like, you know, I've had times where I've read something in the newspaper, and I think, wow, God let that happen. God let that, it's, it's kind of blasphemous to say, but it's tempting not to think, if I were God, I could have, I, I could have stopped, it would have been obvious I would have stopped that, right? Um, part of the message in God's response to Job is to say, God is more sensitively aware of every single person in pain lying in a hospital bed right now, every single person who's been unjustly imprisoned, every single person dealing with the trauma of abuse, every single one of them. God is, is acutely aware of each one. Job has, on the basis of this, uh, of this gratuitous, inexplicable, horrific, extreme suffering, drawn some conclusions about God and says, God's not a good person. He's not trustworthy. He doesn't care about good behavior. Job also contradictorily will also say, if I could just talk with God, we could work this out. I could be friends again. 
if what Job says about God in the bad parts, you'd wonder why would you want to be friends with a person like that? But Job continues to maintain both. And God severs the link between those two. He, his speeches are a way of saying the fact that I allow pockets of chaos, distress, darkness in my world does not mean I am an unjust, un, not good, uncaring tyrant who just doesn't care how people's lives go. That's just not true of me. And God says to Job, you can tell that for yourself if you look at, if you look at the world. He doesn't ask Job to take it on faith. He reasons with him. And I talk about that more in the book. That's only a short answer. And then the second, Behemoth and Leviathan, they are, they are not a crocodile and a hippo. There is abundant evidence within the Old Testament and from the ancient world that God is speaking Job's cultural language. And he's evoking a very common symbol for supernatural chaos to say, Job, you thought I was, you thought I was your tormentor. And I just turned into your enemy for no reason because I'm just a bully. Actually, let me show you your real enemy and mine. Um, and I'm, there's coming a day I, I'm going to unsheath my sword and kill him. So Job is able to Job is able to say, "Okay, God's not my enemy; He's my great friend and champion and defender." Mm. Now that's not a justification, as we already said, it's not justification to Job because Job could always say, "Well, why do you let Leviathan some limited existence at all?" Um, but Job doesn't do that. It's enough for Job to hear that God sees Leviathan clearly, that we know. I mean, Dave, you and I have some dim, vague sense of that deeper, more sinister evil that is, that's at work in the world. You know, God sees it clearly. I think it would scare us if we could see evil, let's say, if we could see it the way God does. And he tolerates, he keeps it within strict limits. He tolerates it for now, but he won't always. And, and, that's how to, and, and Job is able to see the person I've been criticizing as my torturer is actually my great champion and defender and friend. Mm. And he breaks open. Now, that's not a perfect and complete answer. But for a heart that really loves God, and, and if Job didn't love God so much, he would not have agonized so profoundly through the speeches. If for a heart that really loves God, that's enough. Mm, that's really good. I mean, that I think for people that think God doesn't care, that he's so far away. Uh, I think that pretty much, I mean, it, 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 I mean, it shatters that obviously, but it also, you know, administers the, the, the cure, the gospel cure and shows, Hey, God is sufficient. He is good. He, he does care. He is for me as the scripture says, and he's near to those who are hurting and struggling. So I think that's yeah, yeah. really good. I, th I think in a way God ups the ante with Job. It says, actually, Job, let me tell you how terrible Leviathan really is. He's more frightening than you realize. It's almost a way of saying the, wor the world is worse than you know. I'm the only person who really sees it. And yet the one person who is able to see everything that goes wrong in his world is the one person who's the most joyful about it. I find that really striking in the book. Yeah. Well, why, why do you believe that Job is, is the most joyful book in the, in the Old Testament? Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's the most joyful. There are parts of Isaiah and the Psalms are pretty joyful as well, I think we could say. But I was, I, 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 as, I, as I've gotten into the book, I've been struck by the quality of joy that can be utterly realistic and not even Leviathan can diminish it. God, when he describes creation, he describes the different animals there. He just, he, it sounds the opposite of like a politician who's gotten caught out in some mistake and he makes one of those, you know, awkward, ham-fisted, I apologize for inappropriate actions or whatever. He sounds the opposite of defensive or 
um, uncertain or back on his heels, God seems completely happy that the world should continue, even with Leviathan having some limited agency in it. That is really striking. I've just never, I don't know of any other part in scripture that quite spins it that way. I find that really striking. I tend to be a glass is half empty kind of person. In fact, I, I joked with, with a friend once, I, I'm more of a, if I try to drink from that half empty glass, I will cut my lip and bleed to death and die alone in the rain kind of person. You know, I just tend to notice the negative stuff a lot more easily. It has more weight with me. I'm not naturally optimistic. And I just, I find the ending of the book of Job so realistic and not just optimistic, but just joyful that nothing can ruin the joy of heaven in this world before the eschaton that not, not, not and, and not even those, those powers and principalities that are in rebellion against God. Mm. God is not up in heaven looking down. I mean, it, Dave, there, there are children who have died today in the world. There are parents who have had to bury their children. There, there, are, there are people who have been trafficked. There is all kinds of suffering going on. And God can be utterly realistic and see all of that and still say, I'm so glad my world is continuing. So if God can see the world that way, then surely I can. It's really good. Well, it's it okay to feel angry towards God. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's impossible not to ask this. I'm going to hedge again and say it is understandable to feel angry toward God, but no, I don't think it's okay. The reason I say that is very understandable. It's weird if you never are. The reason I say it's not okay is that I can't find a single example of the the Bible, someone angry at God, where it ends well. Job doesn't end the book of God by saying, I'm so glad I argued and now I have a satisfying answer. He, he, he repents in dust and ashes, and he can't believe he's been criticizing God. It doesn't go well with Jonah. It doesn't go well with Elijah. Um, Moses seems bugged at, at a couple of points. I just can't find a single point where someone is angry with God, and they get to the end of it and think, I'm really glad I had it out with God. It's always they don't understand something or they've forgotten something. So so I don't say, for, for someone listening right now, struggling with anger toward God, I'm not condemning you or pointing the finger at you. It's very understandable and even in a way strange if you're never angry with God. But I don't know that with other human beings, sometimes we're justified in our anger at them. Sometimes. I can't find anywhere in the Bible where a human being is justified at being angry at God. Mm, I think that's really good and wise. That's really good. And I, I mean, I think I'm, I'm sure you'd agree the best thing to do is not to try to suppress it, but also not to take it out on God, but to come and confess it and say, I'm angry with you and here's why. But there must be something I'm not, I'm not getting, as opposed to the angry sort of how dare you or something like that. Yeah. Now, even if you do go take your anger out on God, he'll be really gentle with you. And God is really gen- gentle with Job. But I can't find a single time where someone says, I'm so glad I really let you have it, God. That, that's what I don't see. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I think that's really good. Really good. Well, brother, where can people go to find you on social media or on the internet or otherwise? Um, yeah, I try to be pretty careful on social media because there's a lot of unwisdom on there, even by Christians. But I'm on Twitter if people want to hear my rantings and raving sometimes. And if they wanted to, there, there's a, a an online journal called Themelios that publishes stuff in biblical studies and theology. I have some articles there and some stuff on Job and Ecclesiastes. If, if they want to follow up, it's there. Yeah, that's great. That's great. It's all it's all free. It, it's pretty easy to find. So That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, Eric, there's a lot that we could really dive into about this topic. Yeah. And just as we you know wrap up, do you have any takeaways for those who will listen or watch this? 
Only, um, only that for those listening who have read the book of Job or just perhaps listened to this podcast and, and, and they're thinking, huh, maybe that book has more to say to me than I realized. I have nothing but the deepest admiration and love for you, even though I don't know you. If you're going through a Job-like ordeal, and just like Job, you're not always doing great. You say some pretty foolish things that you're ashamed of later, but you are sticking it out and you are trust and, and you and and at one level you don't trust God anymore, and you are sticking with him regardless. Mm. If that's you, I have nothing but the deepest and profoundest admiration for you. I am so glad I get to have you as a brother or sister. I can't wait to meet you in this life or eternity. And on the basis of the book of Job, it is a matter of time until God draws near to you in some way and gives you an answer that comforts you so that from your roots, just like Job, you can say, I am okay with everything that happened to me. It's really good. It's really good. Well, Eric, uh, I really have enjoyed the conversation today. and uh, I have as well. Thank you so much for your time, guys. Uh, Eric's book is Suffering Wisely and Well, The Grief of Job and the Grace of God. Eric, thank you again for your time and for this book and, and for your ministry. God bless you. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dave. I enjoyed it a great deal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter, at Servants of Grace, on Instagram, at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.